This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Howard by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Truth Affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show broadcasting a conversation from the Future Proof Conference with the CIO of an RIA in California. But, Professor, a lot of market volatility this week, responses from the Fed. How are you reacting to what you heard from Powell, what you think they're going to do versus what he's saying they're going to do? (laughs) They are far, far too hawkish. Uh, They are as wrong on the hawkish side uh, for next year as they were totally wrong on the dovish side a year ago for this year, where, as we had said, no one thought we should raise rates. Well, now they think that we should raise rates to 4% or higher. Very disappointed in uh, Powell responses. Um, and, and, and I mean, no one asked the important questions. He, he talked you know, about a slowdown. Uh, we've already had negative GDP growth. No one asked them how we could uh, have three and a half million jobs and negative GDP growth, one of the biggest uh, collapses in productivity history. Not one reporter uh, asked him uh, anything about that. Not, no reporter asked him about, well, what are you, what, what are you looking at? Shelter, uh, because of the construction, is going to cause inflation for a long time. Uh, I think Schiller Index next week is going to show either zero or a decline, certainly a decline for the following month. Don't forget, Schiller is two and a half months lagged. Real estate prices are going down. He said that we want to get real rates uh, on on all maturities. I looked at the tips. All maturities are real rates, positive real rates right now. Um, What's crushing this market is uh, it does not, uh, Fed does not need to be that tight at all. They're worried about over-tightening and pushing us into a recession uh, that they're uh, they're not gaining the clues, um, very honestly. Uh, very, I, I understand why the market is, you know, at or hitting new lows, because if they're going to be this tight, we are going to have a recession. Um, how fast they're going to see it, and we're going to see it. We, it, you know, I mean, he mentioned several times monetary policy works with a leg. Well, all right. Um, uh, you, you've got to be very careful about over tightening. The tips 10 year went to, I think, one four. Um, as I'm looking now, it's one three three, was one four this morning. Uh, that's way too tight um, for this market um, to have a real rate this much. Everyone's talking about just locking up real rates. No one wants to go into risk investment. That's going to have a big impact. Real estate, everything else, mortgage rates are going to go. Nearly to seven, I think, uh, and uh, we are going to have a big slowdown. So that's what that is. What's happening? It's it's not a puzzle. They seem to be as clueless for what's going on into the future this year as they were clueless a year ago for what's happening in 2022. And you you talked about bond rates being lower for longer. Is is four percent? Do you think getting towards the ceiling on the ten year? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was going to go above three and a half, but you know, we we got up to three eighty, what one one or two, in a spike this morning, way too high. I mean, um, given the forward looking inflation, not the reported inflation forward, no one asked him about these differences between the index and what is happening on the ground. I mean, uh, no, by the way, we're going to get the money supply next Tuesday. I expect another drop, um, which uh, to me is will be the biggest, if not the, the second biggest drop since World War II in the money supply from March to the present time. We've never had a drop this much. Look what's going on with the dollar, 20, 30-year highs on the dollar. Every single indicator 
is showing extreme tightness. When we look at commodities, look at oil today. 78. All commodity prices are collapsing. Uh, what is the Fed looking at? Why won't they tell us what they're looking at instead of just repeating, we want to get inflation back to 2%. Are they going to over tighten now just like they stayed too loose uh, in 2021? And that's, that's, that's the danger. It's also very disappointing that, n- n- that no reporter, basically the reporter said to him, uh, all right, you gave us a statement. Now repeat that statement for the next 45 minutes. It was the most uninformative news conference I have ever seen about important issues that needed to be discussed. Maybe we could get a serious XM invite so we could try to get to this conference next time. Um, the uh, Maybe our final minute, we were talking about yields. I mean, what's remarkable, UK five-year yields of 40 to 50 basis points in a day. Any quick comments on... On well, that's the- that t- massive tax cut. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Do they believe in modern monetary theory? I mean, we, uh, you know, given an inflation there, we're just going to add to the debt. You see what happened to the pound sterling down 3%. Uh, I believe uh, Larry Summers worried about parity there. I mean, the euro is down to 97 cents today. Yeah, it's been so it's been amazing global ramifications of all the stuff happening. Uh, we always appreciate your quick comments. Um, we had an abbreviated show today because of uh, the, 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 the conference that we did. But, Professor, thanks for sharing your views on what's been happening. We'll get uh, some updated views from you next week on how the markets are doing with this over tightening Fed. But now we're going to turn our conversation to Brian Spinelli of Halbert Hargrove. This is Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Well, welcome to a special edition of our Behind the Markets podcast. We're here at the Future Proof Conference. Uh, we're, we just got a hot inflation print. So we're going to get some market reaction from Brian, how he thinks about this inflation, how it fits into portfolios. Uh, but Brian, thanks for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Thank you. Welcome to be here. So, Tell us a little bit about your personal background, what you do, h- how you came to Halbert Hargrove and, as CIO. Tell us a little bit about yourself and then the firm. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a loaded question. So Halbert Hargrove uh, was founded in 1933, just up the road here in Long Beach, California. Uh, it was founded by two individuals with the last name Halbert and Hargrove. They're no longer with us. Uh, but the firm was originally launched with personal capital in 1933, which was a hell of a time to start a broker wow. firm. Uh, but we are now a fully registered investment advisor, completely fee only at this point, and have been doing so since 1989. Um, I started with the firm a little over 16 years ago. And it was actually a personal referral that I found the firm through. So my parents were actually clients of the firm. um, And the neighbor of theirs, who was a CPA, I actually worked for as a kid. And he brought me to Halbert Hargrove. And my parents wanted me to do the due diligence on the firm. And a few few years later, I called them up and said, I want to switch into this industry. And they gave me an opportunity. So... So tell us a little bit about your type of clients. Who, when you, if you're to say, like, what is the typical client profile? Who, who do you guys serve the most? So the the we like to call them the quietly wealthy in our firm, but they're primarily individuals and families, and they've worked their whole lives, had a business, or saved money just the natural way. And the average client with us usually invests about three to five million of personal capital. That doesn't include their real estate and other assets that they hold outside. But it's, it's usually individuals and families that we work with. And is there any geographic uh, dominance or is it a lot of West Coast because you're here in California or is it really a sort of national enterprise? I'd say 10 years ago is primarily West Coast based. We, we do have eight other offices around the country, primarily west of uh, Denver um, and all the way down to Houston. But um, we were concentrated within the last two years, obviously with mobility and people switching around. Uh, we're in now 40 states with clients at this point. Very nice. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how you manage portfolios. As you think about building things, uh, give us some of your investment philosophy, how you think about portfolio construction. So we really break clients down into three life phases. So we'll, we'll, we'll go about it a certain way. We'll try to determine what their life phase of investing is. So uh, typically, somebody in the build and grow phase is somebody that's going to have a lot of long-term savings ability. 
And those are the people that really can bear market volatility. Like right now is a great opportunity to be saving regularly. Um, they don't necessarily need as much downside protection in their portfolio. People that enter transition, think of that as that period when you've built up enough capital that your ability to save, if you make a severe loss, your ability to save that, get it back is harder. Um, they still have a little bit of human capital earning ca capacity left in their financial life. And then you get into the distribute and deploy phase and that's really where people are spending from their portfolios. So each of those buckets of clients is gonna have a different type of portfolio. Obviously transition and the distribute and deploy phase is gonna have more downside protection because their ability to sustain a loss right before retirement or while they're spending from their portfolio is harder to do. When you think about the challenges for those portfolios, what are the biggest challenges today? Do you think the equity side is a bigger challenge, the bond side, given where interest rates are and, and all the, the, the macro forces we've had? Where, where is your biggest pain? I'd say both sides. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> painful. Tra traditional bonds haven't performed this year, and equities, obviously, we know what they're doing and the volatility level that they've had this year. So I'd say both sides of those have been the problem. Now, for where interest rates are, um, what, what, what are the types of things you think about doing? Uh, give us an outlook on, on how you look at the bond market and, 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 and what you do to manage around that. So 2017, um, we started talking about the death of 60-40 and you know, the 60% stock side, 40% bond side. We only said death of 60-40 just to get people's attention. We, didn't, we weren't going to call the bond market dead, uh, but it got people's attention. But we started talking about how to navigate an environment where you weren't going to get enough return out of bonds to justify your spending from the portfolio, and then looking at other ways to earn non-equity-oriented return streams to kind of make up for what we thought was going to be a shortfall in fixed traditional fixed income. Um, we did not bail on traditional fixed income and go completely the other way, but we did substitute in quite a bit of uh, alternatives and other strategies to mitigate downside risk from equities to balance out the portfolios. Yeah, there was a panel here yesterday on alternatives, and it was you know question like is is it a panacea or poison, and how do you think through? Alternatives. As, as you started going more into alternatives, what were the types of considerations? Is there a client type? You mentioned the three different goals and that, that types of clients. Is Talk through how much you size alternatives for these different client types and, 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 and how you use that across the board. Mm -hmm. So going back to the build and grow phase, so think of that as the phase where you can take advantage of volatility, especially downside volatility, meaning stocks are dropping a lot. Those people can be buying in in environments like this regularly. They have the saving capability. They don't necessarily need as much in the alternative income space or the risk mitigation because they really should be taking advantage of that long-term equity risk premium. Uh, and it's really just coaching them to stick with it I mean, get them through these periods like what we're going through now. Um, the transition and distribute and deploy, they're really looking for stability more so than they are long-term growth. And so... With the alternative side, we were really looking for ways to buffer the portfolio, protect on the downside a little bit, still give them upside participation, but also finding alternative income streams that they otherwise hadn't looked at. So think of private real estate. Um, I know this is taboo within the last three years, but even looking at reinsurance and doing things like that. But those things have really helped this year to step away from the traditional bond market. And even they're not correlating much with the equity market at this point either. And how much of that is because you don't get prices every day? How much of that is um, just the actual nature of that reinsurance versus real estate market? The, the reinsurance does price pretty regularly. Um, it's not like private real estate as much, but it does get a price um, every day. Most of the stuff we do has a daily price to it. It does adjust. Um, the... The reinsurance stuff is really, you got to be in it for a full year to see how it's going to do. Like we're in peak hurricane season right now, and this is the time where the premiums really start to accrue. Um, but that's just one aspect of many different things that make up an alternative portfolio at this point. But uh, call it on average, uh, a typical client in transition and distributing employee would be running around 15 to 20% uh, true alternatives at this point. 
Now, one of the questions that came up in this alternatives panel yesterday, and it's one of the things that you and I have talked a lot about our firms, uh, Hubbard Hargrove has been a client of Wisdom Trees, particularly in one of our families that creates room for alternatives uh, with sort of a capital efficient core mm-hmm. idea that sort of levers a 60-40 stock bond mix to like a 90-60 combination, uh, and that frees up room for alternatives. Talk about how you guys went through a diligence process, what, how you thought about putting that into portfolios to, for these alternative buckets. Yeah, so the, the efficient core, really what we were looking for there is when we look at our traditional fixed income bucket, there is a lot of credit. There's a lot more active management in that piece of the portfolio. And generally, they have shied away from having any treasury exposure. And so when we made a move and had more active in there, we knew we were getting rid of treasuries. So what we did is by allocating up into the buffered equity or the efficient core area, which is where we use your products, um, we were able to pick up a little bit more of that treasury, that catastrophic hedge, if you will, to the portfolio. So we were able to free up efficiency in the portfolio rather than just having a dedicated index strategy to like ag or something like that. So, you know, this year has been a year where bonds and stocks are going down together so far. Um, Do you think of that as for this type of strategy that has adds bond futures on top of stocks? Do you feel feel that was a failure? Do you feel like we? How do you think about it so far? (laughs) Uh, You know, short run. Yes, it could be considered. uh, You know, a bad thing to do to have any treasuries in an in a portfolio, but. When you think about diversifying a portfolio, you're diversifying because you just don't know what's going to happen. JC even mentioned that on the previous podcast. But you just don't know what's going to happen next. And if there is some sort of catastrophic breakdown, it's a good idea to have some of that in there. But what we like about the efficient core is that you're rolling those futures quarterly and that you're readjusting every quarter. It's not like they were locked into one single strategy. Plus, it gives them... Uh, equity upside if markets do turn around here and they're not just completely out of equities altogether. So it was it was a different way to approach it, free up capital where we didn't have to have as much in the traditional fixed income space. For our listeners on the radio, uh, let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Brian Spinelli, CIO of Halbert Hargrave, a RA out here on the West Coast. Um, Brian, for when, when you look at the, the, the market declines we've seen so far, uh, it, it, how, how do you view that in context of the types of downside you could see in stocks? Are you, are, do you have an outlook for where the markets are generally and, and what we've experienced this year? Uh, our outlook really with, with our particular type of client is really to get them to commit to kind of three to five years. It doesn't mean they're locked up. It just says like if you're going to deploy capital and you're going to invest, you got to get away from the short-term noise. You really need to be thinking of ownership of stocks in a three- to five-year time frame. Historically, that has made you money uh, to do that, to have a long-term view. But really, it's where we're doing most of our job and the heavy lifting right now is just coaching people to get through this to the other side because it will happen at some point. But, you know, we're, we think that we're going to be under stress for a period of time here, and that's why they own alternatives. That's why they own other assets is just to get to the other side of this and still have things working that are different from stocks at this point. In terms of how you allocate within stocks, uh, how tactical do you get? How, you know, is it, is it really a, a core and explore? Is it, is, is it, 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 give us a little bit more on, your, on how you're building the, the allocations. Mm-hmm. So the within within um, the framework of those life phases. So you think of build and grow. Those are the people that have the ability to add. Um, they're really not. We're not advocating they use this type of strategy. But within the transition and the distribute and deploy phases of a client's financial life, we're looking at um, as part of what we carved out of traditional fixed income a few years ago. And it's we've actually been using this strategy going back 14 years now. Um, we use a moving average strategy on part of the equity portfolio. So carve out core fixed income, and then a portion of the U.S. large cap and the international developed is traded on uh, essentially a 200-day average, but we do have to build in a few buffers around that in order to avoid the whipsaws and the the constant trading that can come with it, because it's a really noisy trade to follow the 200-day average. But that way it was, you know, reduce their core fixed income, put a buffer in on the downside because they can now see cash in their portfolio. Um, And then when markets do turn around and momentum starts to build again, they will have more equity in their portfolio than they otherwise probably be comfortable with. Um, 
So like as an example, like part of that portfolio this year or that piece of the portfolio um, exited to cash in late November last year, the other part early January. So clients that are in that phase where they can't sustain the downside as much as a build and grow client, they've been holding on to anywhere from 10 to 12% cash for this period of time. So if you think about that, clients needing money out of their portfolio to fund daily living expenses, um, they have their cash outside, but when they come to us for a distribution, we have a place to go without having to be four sellers in this market. So the trend following strategy, I mean, it's very interesting to talk about that coming from bonds. Um, when, when you think about the overall volatility of, these tr- of stocks versus the trend following, it, it, you see it as that risk reducing to, to follow this, this tactical approach uh, for a good core slug, 10 to 15% of a portfolio is a good slug that people would allocate to this trend mm-hmm. following. Well, you got to have enough in there to make a difference, yeah. right? You do 2%, it's like, so what? Like, right. it's, a, it's, Why great, bother? it's a great talking point, but it has zero impact to the bottom line. Uh, or it does, but it's so marginal, you can't see it. Um, with, with regards to the tactical, it was more about, we were facing bond yields on traditional fixed income that just kept getting lower and lower. And if a client's a long-term investor, eventually... You start thinking about fees, costs, and taxes, their return was getting reduced so greatly that they weren't capturing much except for stability. Uh, So the moving average was really to get them in. It will allow them while they're invested to collect dividends. Um, And then when things get stressful, it will allow them to see something done in their portfolio to protect them if this lasts long enough. But um, it was never done. Like We never had the intention of doing this to beat the market. It was really about adding more market exposure to the portfolio, equity market exposure to the portfolio than it was trying to use this as a new mousetrap to outperform. It was really meant to outperform bonds. So the 60-40 was dead. This was part of the way to increase equities, but in a risk-controlled manner, sounds like. Yes, exactly. It was to get people to accept more equity market exposure than they otherwise probably would tolerate, specifically for periods like right now. Last year, everybody wanted equities, right? So, as you think about valuations across the the globe, is that in in terms of a timing signal? Do you, do you use anything on valuation for setting return expectations? How you build uh, build portfolios? So value value wise, like in our U.S. stock side of the portfolio, we do have a value tilt. It's a tilt. It's not a hundred percent value. We're not subscribing to a hundred percent value, but there is a tilt there right now. Um, with regards to international and emerging markets, I mean, if you look at those over the last 10 years, right, I don't even think they've annualized 2%. Like, yeah. It's been pretty hard to be an international and emerging market investor from a U.S. dollar perspective, right? Um, but when you look at valuations in those markets, I mean, they're so cheap, but value isn't a timing tool. It's like, how long can you hold on to this for them to come back? 15 years has been a painful 15 <laughs> years for any international investor. It's exhausting, yes. It's exhausting. So does that, have you guys migrated away from that? Or how, how global are your portfolios? Uh, if we look at the MSCI Acqui Index, um, we're a little underweight international EM, but very close to that right now. So that's a pretty um, you know, different trade than a lot of people, which has been 100% U.S. large cap through this period. And, and do you think the S&P and, or, or U.S. markets, as you think about that, you said a little bit value tilted. Um, if there's a place in the U.S. markets that you can be concerned about is with, with this, the narratives that we have in the market today, inflation being an issue, Tech has come under some of the most pressure. How do you view that as, as part of portfolios? Where, what do you think about the technology and growth side of the market today? Well, uh, you know, one of the things to think about it, we are primarily on our equity side of the portfolio, either direct indexed or we're using ETFs primarily to expose people to a passive approach. Those, those indexes naturally change. And so there is going to be some turnover there. And we don't try to second guess the market as far as where capital is flowing. We just want to be there when it does flow. So as the S&P changes or the Russell 1000 reconstitutes, they're going to naturally pick up the sectors that are attracting more capital. We, on, on the podcast stage right before us, we heard uh, somebody talk about maybe three times in your energy exposure yeah. because energy is like the one place 
that is diversifying the inflation narrative, outperforming the rest of the market. Is that something you could see? I, I could see it. I don't know if we'd make that bet. Like as a firm, I don't know if we would put our, ca our client's capital at risk that same way because that could be an outsized bet that doesn't work out for them. A lot of the cases, our clients aren't asking us to, to permanently harm them. Yes, they will participate in markets, but for the most part, uh, they need to be broadly exposed and be able to capture different areas of the market as they change. And that's really been more of our focus is to be more market oriented in that particular area of the portfolio. Well, well, let's respond a little bit. You know, today was a big inflation day. Uh, the markets are responding. Um, when, when people listen to us on, on the radio and, and the Behind the Market podcast, it, it'll be two weeks from today. Uh, yeah, but, that's uh, right. Let's, let's still respond to what's happening in the markets post this inflation number. How, how do you navigate inflation for clients? What do you, how do you tell them to, to be on the lookout? So uh, infl it's a, with an individual and then with a family, Inflation to them is you have to make it personal. Yes, it impacts their particular financial market exposure, right? Because inflation is impacting markets today. I don't know why they got ahead of themselves, but they did. Um, and we're seeing the adjustment today for that reason. But with, with an individual client or a family, you, can, you have to talk to them about their personal inflation. Like, where, what's that going to do to their own personal spending? And you know, within the type of client base that we tend to serve, most people own a home. Most people are either in a fixed mortgage or they've paid off their house. So their housing expense isn't part of their inflation number. Most of their inflation is controllable to a degree, except for medical inflation. That's a really difficult one where, where they get um, primarily their inflation is from all their discretionary spending, like coming to Huntington Beach and paying $600 a night for a hotel or something like that. That's where they're going to see the inflation. And then depending on how much they eat out and how much food they consume, that's going to be another big area. But really helping them in their financial plan identify where their pockets of inflation are going to hurt them more so than what we're seeing in markets right now, which we do believe over time will moderate. It may not get back to the deflationary aspect, the 2% that we were at before, but it might you know, be a little bit more elevated for longer than they've been used to the last 10 years. But it's really making it personal to them more so than it is about trying to second guess what the markets and what their inflation readings are going to be over the next few months here. Do you have an outlook for what the Fed is going to do with all this inflation? Like how high do you think we're going to get on the short-term interest rates? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I do think they're just going to keep going. I, I don't think they're going to slow down. I mean, I think the market's a little opt uh, optimistic that they think the Fed's just going to turn around and cut. They've been behind. Um, and they're going to play catch up and they're going to make sure absolutely that they do their job. And if they go too far, that might be the risk that we have to face. Uh, but I don't think they're going to slow down. So they, we, it seems like 75 basis points in September. And now everybody's talking maybe another 75 in November. I mean, just a few weeks ago, people say maybe they'll go to 25 and 25 to close the year. Mm -hmm. They start getting negative inflation prints. That didn't happen. If you, had, if you were to guess, put your crystal ball guesstimates hat here, where, where do you think the Fed ends up with the short-term rates? Ooh. So where are they at today, right now? Three and a... Get, not, we'll get to three, I think, with we'll get the to next three 75. And, yeah, so I bet you they get to four pretty quickly. And I, I'd see, I could see that being completely feasible for the next, the rest, few, rest of the few months. I mean, what, one thing we look at, we don't try to guess and time what the Fed's going to do. But one thing we do look at is market reactions. And you look at the probabilities of the rate hikes over the next few cycles here. And a few weeks ago, right, they were, maybe even a month ago, they, people were betting only a 50 basis point cut. And then that quickly shifted to 75. I mean, there's been huge swings. So I don't think the market really knows, and neither does the Fed at yeah. this point. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. So, so Brian, we talked about the death of 6040 and what you're doing to manage around that. Is there a level of rates that would tell you this is more interesting to get back in bonds? As, as you look across the bond market, I mean, the high yield bond spreads have widened out a bit. Like, what would it take to get more bullish on bonds that the 6040 is a back live and well? So, when we start seeing uh, call it the Fed slow down a little bit. I think that might be a good signal. But even today, if somebody has cash and they are looking to invest at higher rates, I'd say there's an opportunity now. 
I mean, and it may not have to just be passive bond exposure, but there's an opportunity even within active right now where depending on what you're willing to lock your capital up for for a period of time, um, you're seeing yields out there 5%. Sometimes you can get 8 but you're going to have to go into private markets for that. And I'd say that's pretty competitive versus where we were exactly, call it 12 to 14 months ago. So when you talk about the 8 um, what what's sort of the credit quality on that 8%? Uh, the, probably more high yield-ish. That's right. Um, so high, you can high or, bonds. or direct deals, you know, direct corporate deals that you're getting into. But that is not something that I would say our firm is going to say we're going to go do directly ourselves. We're going to look for a manager that has heft in that market to do those deals. Right. Um, and in in the real estate market is when 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 you're thinking about you talk about alts and private real estate. Is is mortgage rates and rising rates having a spillover into that market? Is that any concern, or how, how do you how are you looking at the real estate markets? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you directly how we invest in private real estate because like like we are on the equity side, we do like the passive approach to a lot of different markets. Um, one thing that individuals generally are underweight unless they just own like a small rental single family home or something like that that they rent out. One thing that they're generally underweight is institutional quality real estate. So think of where insurers put their balance sheet. Think of where large institutional players, endowments, foundations put their balance sheet for income. Um, They're doing large-scale industrial. They're doing large-scale multifamily. And we're not talking one or two doors. We're talking hundreds of doors per property. Um, And looking at those particular markets, but one area that we look to right now for private real estate exposure, if you're looking for an index that you want to compare to, it's the NFI Odyssey Index. And that's really where you get your core institutional exposure. It's not as attractive as like some of the other areas of real estate where you can build in leverage and do things like that. But, you know, you're earning 4.5%, 5% just on the yield right now without even building in the price appreciation from industrial and multifamily. But that's an income substitute. That's really what it was for. With uh, an inflation kicker. With a little bit of an inflation kicker, true. And I think, you know, generally what we saw across at least the people we serve, when they come to us, they generally do not have institutional real estate. They, yes, they own a single family home, they live in their home, they have some to the private market, uh, the smaller private market, but they really don't have the broad scale diversified uh, real estate that say an insurer would have for income on their portfolio. Well, anything else that you think for as this inflationary environment, you said you might, it might last longer. What else do you think about as, as hedging or, or managing that risk? Um, I would say we're probably not hedging inflation. I think that's a really hard thing to do because one thing you can look at, look at all the inflation hedges or things that were touted as inflation hedges. How many of them actually performed this year? Right? They're, How much has performed? Not much. Not much. They, most of them have not performed. And that's the, that's the challenge. They were touted as inflation hedges and they're not. I think inflation is a very hard thing to hedge. Um, I think at the individual level, you can hedge it to a degree, but it comes with some deal of pain, which you cut back a little bit on the things you can, you can control. And that's really who we're coaching. We're coaching those clients how to hedge their personal inflation more so than hedge the market side of it. Uh, anything with commodities? Do you, do you think commodities are, have, a, have a role in, in some of this? Yes. Um, we have not done much with direct commodity exposures at this point. But um, yes, you could do some of that. It's just how much of your portfolio are you willing to carve out for that bet? And how much are you willing to be wrong if it doesn't work out that way? And that's, that's really the question we want to ask. And it hasn't been a heavy, heavy position for us at this point. Now, now we're here at the Future Proof Conference. And you know, one of the big parts of future, a lot of, there's a lot of conversation about crypto, digital assets. How does Howard Hargrove look at that opportunity? That's also been touted potentially, Bitcoin at least, as, as this inflation hedge. Yeah. Talk about how you guys have approached crypto for your clients and, and advisors. So um, we do think that digital assets have a role in portfolios. Um, We are primarily a discretionary asset manager. However, our approach to crypto crypto has been more uh, measured. 
Um, we do it on more of a non-discretionary basis, but the the role we've taken with it is, one, over the last couple of years, get educated on it, know what to do, know how to do it, and then be, at, be able to start helping our clients facilitate those trades. So um, we are telling clients, uh, you know, as they bring up the interest level in it, um, especially when it was hitting highs last year, right, yes. um, is talking about how they can step into it and can they afford to invest in it. And so our approach uh, primarily has been 1% to 2% of your liquid net worth if you're willing to commit that that 1% or 2% could turn into a zero permanently. Where do you think your competitor advisors are with crypto? Like, are they, do, you, do you think you're early in that trend? Do you think others are doing this as well? How, how do you see that landscape? Uh, I'd say probably a little early. We're not the first, obviously, to be there, but I'd say we're still pretty early overall within the general population. And, and what was the, I mean, I think one of the big concerns for advisors, particularly holding direct exposure at, at a place like Gemini, is how you get comfortable with all the regulatory frameworks. I mean, they haven't allowed a spot Bitcoin ETF to our chagrin. I mean, we would like to make that easier for people, right. but uh, so far the SEC hasn't. How did you get comfortable holding the individual coins and tokens, uh, at least right now you're doing Bitcoin and ETH. Mm -hmm. what, how, how did you get comfortable with those? We, we wanted to own the, this was our general approach and there's some um, great pooled products out there that you can go get broad exposure to crypto at this point and they've attracted clients. What we wanted to do for our advisors and our clients as we stepped into it, we wanted the direct exposure to the two largest cap positions so that we could explain what was going on with it. That way, they, it was an education process. They didn't have all these other things off to the side that were moving that fund. It was, yeah. here's what Bitcoin's done, here's what ETH has done, You're, you've performed passively with those. And keep it more straightforward for them. If, if a client comes in and says, why do I want these in my portfolio? Like, What is the investment narrative that, you're, that you guys believe in for, for these two exposures? So one, it, one we go back to, um, can you afford to do it? If it doesn't work out, uh, does it vary the portfolio? Does it have an adverse impact to the bottom line, the total return of the portfolio? And like I said earlier, you can explain it to them. Like you have 50% in, let's, and I'm just using a round number. Let's say you have 50% in stocks at this point. On any given day, your portfolio is going to move. Like, so for example, you did a 3% down day, you have 50% in stocks, guess what? You're, you're, you're going to be down 1.5%. So if you have a 1.5% exposure to Bitcoin or ETH or both of them, it's really not going to move your portfolio. So it's more of a, hey, this, we think this is going to be a trend long term. We don't think it's going away. And treat this more like a venture investment. It, it, don't look at it every day because it's going to drive you nuts. And don't look at it on a Saturday night when it goes down. Um, but use it Use it as a long-term, this is money that goes way beyond three or five years as far as how this industry develops and attracts capital. You know, one of the nice things about this Future Proof Conference, you could ask questions uh, and on Slido.com, the Future Proof AC, if you want to ask questions. I see two questions have come in, uh, and so we might as well address some of these, what's on our, our live listeners' uh, minds here. Uh, you, you mentioned for inflation, you're always looking at people's individual situations uh, and clients worry about rising healthcare costs in retirement. What, how do you guys think about these rising healthcare costs? Are there, do you think, dedicated allocations to overweight healthcare, overweight sort of biotech and, and sort of rising medical costs? Is that a question that you guys try to incorporate into portfolios? Not necessarily a direct investment theme. It, that goes more onto the financial planning side and really seeing what type of portfolio they kind of need to get them the returns over the long term to cover that. Um, I'd say we're probably within just the financial planning, what our advisors do on a daily basis with clients is we're building in pretty high inflation indicators on their Medicare costs and on their supplemental coverage right now. And a lot of the time when they look at their spending, they're like, this is what I spend in a year. And then they see their financial plan and they see this eighteen to $20,000 slug for medical costs on average. They're like, what is that? And it's like, well, that's us trying to ensure that your future's covered because we don't know what it's going to be. Right. But it's a very big problem right now. And I don't, 
I don't know if anybody has an answer for it, but it's a very big problem for people that are going into retirement to cover that big slug of money that they're going to need for medical costs at this point. But it, I'd say it's a big concern, but that falls more on the financial planning side at this point. The other, another question that came in from our, our live audience here, how do you incorporate ESG if, if you are? Um, so ESG, that's been an interesting topic, right? Because, you know, for the, for the most part, ESG is really in the question, how do you define that for an individual client? And that's been the challenge the industry's had, right? Is what's ESG mean to one particular client may mean something different to a, another client. But within, within ESG, I will say that either when a client express interest in it, as long as they understand that they're going to be tilting away from markets to a degree, um, we either do it through more of a direct index type strategy where we put in the filters that they are passionate about, um, or if they really don't know what they're doing, we will look to the MSCI indexes primarily to say, okay, you can get an ESG tilt. But the one thing to remind them is if you tilt too far away, just like this year, right, you might not have an energy exposure. We haven't done that. We haven't gone that pure form. Um, we really want to stress back to them like, hey, you do need to have these kind of returns and you can't be away too far away from the market or you're going to start wondering why. Um, but we are incorporating it where we see within our discovery process, where we see a client passionate about it. So a lot of direct indexing. Would you say it's overweight direct indexing versus sort of broad solutions? Oh, no, let me, let me correct that. We can either do it through like exchange-traded funds that exist at this point, or we can do it through a separate account. Okay. Depends on what they're looking for. If it's more broad-based, you can do it primarily through exchange-traded funds at this point. Well, we love that the questions keep coming in. It makes my it makes job, your as, job easier, as a host yeah. a little bit easier. So we got a few more questions. First one, um, there's a lot of conversations about politics, um, and even like ESG is sort of very two-sided on, on, yeah. on views, yeah. and, and sort of the, the, the political spectrum getting more and more divided. Uh, are client concerns about all the world and national events how does that factor into your allocations? What's on clients' minds? What they're asking? Short run um, seems to be the question, but 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 how do you how do you think of this in the big picture? We always go back to I mean, you look at J.P. Morgan puts out a nice slide on this with their guide to the markets, um, talking about geopolitical risk and how markets have performed even through all those geopolitical periods. It's more of a coaching exercise right now. It's more of a behavioral coaching to get people to see the big picture over a long period of time. Yes, we have a lot of problems as a world, and yes, we have a lot of challenges, but optimistically, we seem to move beyond them. I mean, we always get better. Um, we always get beyond these types of things, and if you're really focusing on a three to five year view, especially if you're investing in riskier assets, it's just getting people to get to the other side of that behaviorally and not do something. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know, you know, I can't, I can't guess what nation's going to be next on the list, but it's really just getting them to understand that we've had geopolitical events. These are not new to investing, and we've always had worries every year. Year to year, it's always something different. The, the midterm election cycle is one that a lot of the sort of market seasonality people say you're getting to a point in that where that might become a much more opportune time for the market. You're getting past some of the volatility that comes in some of the election years like you, you have right now. I, I, we, we talked a little bit about your global allocations. I mean, I think that you have the U.S. politics, but you have the geopolitics for sure. Russia becoming un, where they zeroed people, you know, they zeroed out exposures yeah. uh, and we, we've sort of self-inflicted wounds. Like if you had exposure to Russia, the U.S. said you've got to mark it down to zero, right. uh, which is uh, to me, it's only helping the Russian oligarchs buy their companies cheaper um, versus actually hurting Russia. But do you, do you think about that with China when, when you look at emerging markets? Is that a potential risk for your global allocations? Absolutely. And that's why you don't own as much in emerging markets as you would U.S. equities at this point. But should you be out of them entirely? I don't, I don't know if I subscribe to that. Um, I think there's a volatility play there and there's a valuation play. It's just if you have a little bit of it, it might go a long way versus right. too much of it. Um, and I will say we don't know what the world's going to do, but we're going to follow where capital flows. And that's the idea of just trying to get more of the market exposure overall. 
another question came in um, about low expected returns. Uh, maybe give us your sense of what are current returns, like the, look at the historical returns, how you think today's returns match to that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you mentioned early on about allocating to alternatives. Uh, do you feel like you have the appropriate amount of alternatives? Do you think you're going to change that over time? So let's start with your return outlook before the, you get to the alternatives. Re return outlook, yes. I think people need to tamp, uh, temper their expectations. The last five to ten years of equities might not repeat exactly the same this next 10 years. So um, temper your expectations. Do I think equity markets are going to be like completely dire over the next 10 years? No. But do I think they're going to be 8 or 9% annualized? Probably not that high. But they're still going to be somewhere in the positive rate of return, you know, high single digits if they can get there. Um, where, and that's just kind of long term. I don't know what it's going to do tomorrow or the next day. But um, really, I do think people just need to temper their expectations and and just approach it with a more rational view than to say the last five years are going to repeat the same. We may not have the same accommodation we've had. Uh, that doesn't mean you stay out of equities, right? That, that, because we all know if you try to time markets heavily, you can be really wrong for really long. Um, with regards to alternatives, no, I don't think we're done. I, I'll, I'll be as emphatic to that. I don't think we're done with uh, the allocation. I do think there might be opportunities for more. It just depends on what and how. So what is on the diligence list? Where are you looking? What are people, uh, what, what do you think is the most, you, so you talked about reinsurance, you talked about private real estate. What are the types of return streams? And is it exactly be funded? Well, we talked about how you're using the efficient core to create some of the room, but do you think the opportunity is more in the fixed income or, or equity side to, it, to create room? It might be a little bit more on the fixed income side or diversifying the existing alternatives a little bit more. Um, as, and the, the good thing about this is, you know, Firms like yours, um, other firms out there are trying to find RIAs a way to access certain markets that they otherwise have been shut out of a little bit for their client size and minimums and stuff like that. Um, we are actively looking and have been actively looking at private equity, but um, what, at least this is our philosophy. It may not be you know the broad population, but our philosophy is, is you know as clients come in. Um, as we add capital, as clients need to you know, change around things, we needed an evergreen solution. Um, we didn't want to be picking vintages or trying to diversify within vintages. So um, we've been looking more at the evergreen opportunities out there. And you know, technology being what it is today, onboarding is becoming a lot easier than, say, what it was when we did um, direct deals, say, 15 years ago. Because we did do subscription-based investments um, we have had those as part of our opportunity set for a while, but they were always so cumbersome to get enough capital in them that actually had an impact to the bottom line. So I'd say the, the hot button right now is, uh, is figuring out private equity and figuring out a long-term solution there that works for our firm and our clients. Um, and then we're going to continue pushing a little bit on the crypto space um, in, a, in a moderate fashion to get people exposed to her more broadly, because that is one-on-one -on -one conversations. It's not just a right. sweeping allocation. So Bitcoin and Ether, the two there, is when you're thinking about that, is it all allocating to more coins, essentially, when you think about broadening that crypto allocation? Yeah, I mean, if if in Eagle Brook's work, they just announced this with John Hancock. They just did a. You have a over a trillion dollar asset manager partnering with Eagle Brook now for a solution. Um, they're coming to market with more of a cap weighted index approach that gives you more exposure than just those two. So I could see that becoming a powerful way to get people a broad exposure, so that you're not betting on one one particular token to win the war. Uh, but rather uh, quite a few different types of things that do different things uh, long-term. So I'm, I'm going to throw in my two cents on the equity return question, just to give how I think about the equity valuations. You know, the, when I, I, I've worked with Professor Siegel now for the last 20 years, stocks for long run, six editions coming out in a few weeks. <laughs> yes. uh, so an updated plug for, for the book. You know, his long-term data showed equities did a little bit over 6.5% for 200 years. Uh, and that, but it wasn't just the 200 years. It was more recent time periods. The last, you know, the, the Ibbotson data goes from 1926. That was just under 7%. You look at sort of post-World War II, you had 7%. And bonds over that long-term period did three and a half. Right. And you say, like, where is stocks versus bonds pricing? 
I actually don't know that stocks are pricing in well below the, the average. I mean, I, I think your bonds at, for, at long-term returns being three and a half, you have the 10-year tips today at 80 basis points. Mm-hmm. So bonds are like 270 basis points below their long-term average. Stocks maybe you're getting to, P-E ratios have come down. Right. Um, and, and sort of forward PEs, call it 17 to 18. Now, of course, you got to question the, the earnings cycle. We're going to have a recession. But on a normalized earnings basis, and there's questions on where our profit margins, how that can all maintain. But maybe stocks are five and a half to six, so maybe a percent below averages. But it's bonds that are the key challenge. I think that's where this whole conversation, alternatives, what else are you doing in the alternative section, is, is well-founded. But I, I'm not sure that stocks are way below their average. And with, with higher inflation, you might get an 8%. 8 to 9 right. might actually yeah. be a 10-year outlook and, and reasonable. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with you on that. We've got our final few-minute comments. Uh, we, we, we've really touched around the world a whole host of topics. Any closing thoughts as you think about how you're managing portfolios or, or things that you'd like to talk about, Howard Hargrove? I, w- I would just say rise above the noise. Every day it's going to be noisy here for a while here, but counsel is, is like, look, if you've set in a strategy and you committed to it, keep that three to five year view. Don't try to time this and second guess what you're going to do because you'll probably cause more damage to yourself than you will with what the markets are going to do on a daily basis. So we're very much the long term. You know, you picked a strategy. It was appropriate for your financial plan. It was appropriate for where you're at in your financial life. Now's the time. These are the moments you stick with it. Just like last year, you know, where everybody around you seemed to be making money in tech and all the high growth names tempering your expectations that you shouldn't pile into that. It's the same sort of thing here, but we're just fighting it on a different side of it. And if people liked what they heard, they want to find out more, where can they get more information about your firm? If they want to become a client or an advisor, wants to find a way to join up, how, what, what? Yeah, the, the, the best way to do that is to go to halberthargrove.com and our wonderful marketing person is out here in the audience, Kelly Keemley. And uh, you can contact us, contact us through that website. We'll be happy to qualify you and answer questions initially. And if you fit as a client, um, we'll be happy to take you through our discovery process and see if we can help you in your financial situation. But uh, we really do like to do the due diligence on the client first and make sure that we're going to be a good fit for what they're looking for. Well, Brian, this is a unique conference here on the beach, doing a live radio show slash podcast. Thanks for coming to Future Proof yep. and doing Behind the Markets. I think the last time I was here, I was at a punk rock concert just down the way. So a little different venue. <laughs> well, well, thanks again for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.